0: Good morning. morning. I thought I was organized before I got up here, but I wasn't. All right, let's pray and ask the Lord to bring his spirit and be present with us and to bless our time in the word. Lord, thank you that in your goodness, in your mercy, in your kindness, in your love towards us, you've given us your Holy Spirit. And, Father, I I pray and ask that it would be present in this room, overflowing and filling everyone here, including myself, that the words I would speak would be the words you would have put into my mouth for your glory and for the good of every person here, including myself. And I pray, Lord, that your, your spirit would open all of our eyes, Open all of our ears, open all of our hearts, open all of our minds, so that we may hear what you want us to hear. We will see what it is you want us to see, whether it's about ourselves or about you. And that we would be amazed at your goodness and your glory. And we pray this, Father, because you promise that you will give good gifts to your children, And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so now we uh, get started with Sermon on the Mount proper. If you remember last week, I gave you kind of an overview introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, and then we read all the way through it. I hope that was an encouragement and blessing to you. It was really something for me myself to hear it all the way through. And so now we're going to look at the Beatitudes, this first short section From Matthew chapter 5, 3 through 12, from the book of Matthew. And so I'll start with verse 2. And he, Jesus, opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when we look at these Beatitudes, Warren Weersby gave it a title one time of calling the Beatitudes. That these are the attitudes that we are to have and to practice and to exhibit as part of our normal daily life and the way we think and the way we feel. And then if you're thinking about something like an attitude, what is it that Jesus says about our attitudes? Where do they come from? Where do the things that we feel and the things that we say and the things that we do, where does it come from? It comes from our hearts. right? He says out of the overflow of our hearts, do we say the things that we say and do the things that we do? And here in this section, he's telling us, if you remember from last week, I talked about this is this whole section of chapters five, six, and seven are the ethics, the, the, the way he expects us as his disciples to live. And these beatitudes are the beginning of that. And this idea that we're supposed to live like this and to do these things is okay. Until we actually start reading them. And it's like, really? I'm supposed to do this? I'm supposed to be like this? I mean, this is upside down, right? Jesus, you know that the rest of the world doesn't work this way, right? You do know that, right? But yet, this is upside down. And that's one of the things he's starting out trying to help us to understand is this phrase that I like to use, the upside-down nature of the kingdom. Everything's just upside-down from the way we know it to be and the way the rest of the world operates and works. The other thing that struck me about this, and I, I told it to Amy last night when I was putting the final pieces together for this sermon, was like, the more I study, the less there is for me to say from this passage. It's like, oh God, shoot, I've already committed to just these handful of verses, right? I can't go ahead and expand it out now to the next couple of paragraphs so that I can fill up an entire sermon. I've got to figure out a way to make this work for just these verses. But it's like, do we really need them explained to us? In one sense, no, we don't. It's kind of self-evident. What's there? What Jesus means? But in another sense, we do kind of need it explained to us because this is so, so backwards from everything we understand about our life and living life. So, see what we can do here. And this very first one, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One of the first things to notice is that he begins and ends this whole section on the Beatitudes with that same phrase, the the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3 starts out with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he ends in verse 10 with, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it's like this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, is a bookend for the whole Beatitudes, the beginning and the end of it. And then there's this individual aspect of that the way we acquire the kingdom of heaven is to be poor in spirit and then to be persecuted for our righteousness sake. Well, okay, I'm kind of okay with the first one, but the second one I'm not so okay with. I I don't know about you, but I just don't really enjoy unpleasantness whether it's a verbal unpleasant experience or a physically unpleasant experience, I would just rather avoid that part. But he says that's one of the ways we gain the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so we'll come to that one later. Let's just stick with the poor in spirit part for a few minutes. I mean, in one sense, it's self-evident what it means to be poor in the spirit. We kind of like understand the meanings of the word poor. The meaning of the word spirit. But then in another sense we don't really understand what it means. And what is he talking about here. Because this is just weird way to talk about stuff. Nobody talks about being poor in the spirit today. It's just a weird phrase. We don't know what to do with it. I don't know what to do with it. So what does he mean by being poor in spirit? Well. One of the things that he means about being poor in the Spirit is something that is in the Old Testament. I mean, this was really shocking. Jesus just didn't make this stuff up. Can you believe that? He just didn't make this stuff up. This is already present in the Old Testament. All these things he's talking about here in the Beatitudes are already there. And almost all of them are in Psalm 37. Psalm 37. So let's just take a quick peek at that one. So turn your Bibles backwards to Psalm 37. We'll start, I'll just, it's not a very long Psalm. Well, it kind of is, but I'm going to read the whole thing to you anyway. That's supposed to be one of those humorous moments where you kind of relaxed and laughed a little bit. Psalm 37 of David, meaning David wrote this, Fret not yourselves because of evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourselves, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright, Their sword shall enter their own heart and their own bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they shall have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like The glory of the pastures, they vanish like smoke. They just vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. And those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, which he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong. For the Lord upholds his hand. I have been a young man and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so you shall dwell forever, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever." The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart and his steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on what the wicked are and cut off. You'll look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, I could not find. Mark the blameless and behold the upright for theirs is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed and the future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Did you notice every single one of the Beatitudes is there in Psalm 37? In some direct explicit form or a subtle way, it's always there, all of them. And so when the Lord talks about this poor in spirit, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does Psalm 37 describe as the person who is received and loved by God? The person who is humble. The person who is attentive to God's righteousness. Not embracing wickedness. And that's what the poor in spirit is. See, what the poor in spirit is not is someone who is just a doormat. Someone who just doesn't see any value in themselves at all. That's not poor in spirit. That's not the biblical poor in spirit. That's not God's idea of being poor in spirit. What's being poor in spirit is to acknowledge our frailty. To acknowledge our need for Christ. Our need for Him. Uh, I mean, this should be easy. This should be easy. But it's not. At least it's not for me. And if it is for you, just keep that to yourself. If it's easy for you to be poor in spirit, I don't want to know that. Because it's not easy for me. I guess actually if it is easy for you to be poor in spirit, I do want to know. Maybe that you have something to teach me. But to be poor in spirit is to be humble before the Father. To not be haughty. To not be prideful. That's what being poor in spirit is. And the reward for not being prideful is the kingdom of heaven itself. Well, that's not hard for us to believe. I mean, over and over throughout Scripture, we're admonished to not be prideful and that God hates the haughty heart and that the humble are the ones who he receives into his presence. So it's not surprising that the poor in spirit receive the kingdom of heaven. It's just not easy to be that. At least not for me. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The mournful person, what does it mean? What is he talking about, the mourn? To blessed are those who mourn. Well, yes, there's this element of grief there. And this idea that the ones who mourn will be comforted is, is yes, this idea that the Lord himself will be comfort and be comforting to those who are in grief. But it's more than just that. To mourn is to recognize our own fallen nature and our own propensity to disobey and rebel against him and to be and when we recognize that to be grieving over our disobedience to him and our sinfulness our acts open acts of rebellion against him and to grieve over that as someone grieves the loss of a close friend or loved one but it's more than just grieving over our own sinfulness it's also the grieving over the greater at large effects of a fallen sinful world where the actions the sinful actions of others are having negative impact on other individuals not directly related to us and grieving and mourning over the consequences of that and to desire that it was not that way that it is not this way and for that Mourning for that grieving over sin, we are promised that we will be comforted. Well, how does that work? How does my being sad over my own sinfulness or the sinful effects in the world around us and the culture at large? How does God comfort me in that? Well, I mean the first thing that comes to my mind is when i 'm in you know mourning over my own sinfulness is the promise of his forgiveness through the blood of Jesus, right? I am cleansed. I am made whiter than snow, and it's as if it's not there at all. As far as the east is from the west is the promise for those who have put their faith in the blood of Jesus. That's pretty comforting to me. I don't know about you, but it's very comforting to me to know that his blood cleanses me, of the very thing causing my grief. Well, that's great for us individually, but what about when we are grieving over the larger effects of the sin in the culture and and the terrible things that happen to individuals, the things we read about in the news, whether it's here in the U.S. or abroad in places where there's terrible destruction taking place. How are we comforted By our grieving over that. What does Psalm 37 say? About. God's seeing what the wicked does. Even when it's not something they're doing directly to us. That he would make this right. And the comfort that we receive is the promise. The promise that our God. Is the supreme God. And the supreme judge of the universe. And he will either in this life or the next make right what has been made, what has been done wrong. And I am comforted in knowing that that is who he is and that is what he will do. It is frustrating to see the heartbreak, to see the hurt done to others by evil, wicked people that care about nothing but themselves. And the frustration that there just doesn't seem to be any justice for this wronging done to the innocent person here in this life. But the promise is that he will take care of this. And there's something somewhere about it's a dangerous and unpleasant thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I don't think I want to be that guy. The one who falls into the hands of the living God. I want to be something different. And by his mercy and by his grace, he's transforming us into something different. Then blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. That was explicitly there in Psalm 37 verse 11. I mean, just flat out said it word for word. The meek will inherit the earth. Okay, so Jesus, we were doing okay until we got to this spot. You realize the meek get nothing in this world, don't you? We don't, you got the, don't you get that? It is by those who take it by force are the ones who get it. John Adams, our second president, was serving as ambassador in France during George Washington's presidency. No, he was vice president then. It was prior to that. Prior to the Revolutionary War, he was serving as the ambassador to France. And in France, they had a special holiday in which was called King for a Day. They would make a plum pie as part of the celebration, and they would put an actual physical plum in the pie, not you know, completely intact. And the idea was is whoever found the plum in their piece of pie, they were now king or queen for the day as part of the celebration. So in keeping with that celebration that day in France, Abigail baked a plum pie with a plum hidden in it. Along with John and Abigail was John Quincy and their other daughter whose name I can't remember. So it comes time to serve the pie. Of course, everybody wants to find the plum. Everybody wants to get a piece of the pie that has the plum in it so they can be king or queen for the day. John Quincy cuts a slice of the pie Tears it apart, rips into it. I mean, literally just destroys his piece of pie looking for the plum. Is not there. His sister does the same thing. Tears it apart. Nothing there. John grabs the entire pie and des- destroys it. Grabs the plum, holds it in the air and says to his children, thus are kingdoms taken, not given. Kingdoms are taken, not given. The meek don't get a kingdom. The meek have a kingdom taken from them. Don't you know that, Jesus? But what does Jesus tell us? The meek shall inherit the earth. This just makes no sense. Because the economy of heaven is different than the economy of this earth. Okay, let's just slow down for a second, right? Before we say Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about, let's at least define the word meek. What does Jesus mean by the word meek? Even the culture has corrupted the word meek so that it doesn't mean what it's supposed to mean. Meek in our culture is a doormat. The person who just always gets taken advantage of because they just don't have the moral fortitude to stick up for themselves, But that's not what meek means. That's not what its definition is, nor is it what Jesus means by the word meek. Jesus' meaning for the word meek, the one that we see laid throughout Scripture, is the person who out of kindness to the other person does not demand what they want for themselves. It's putting others above yourself first. That's the definition of meek that Jesus means. Meek is the person, meek is the person who they have 10 ways to kill you, but they choose not to. This is the person who, who could literally take over the kingdom, but they choose not to. Because that's not their purpose. They understand that to do so would mean that they must inflict harm on others. That they are unwilling to do because they believe that is immoral to hurt others just to become king or queen. Meekness is the person who is self-controlled. The person who is able to do the right thing for the right reasons. In the right way. That's meekness. Meekness is, is the gentle rebuke of someone who has done something wrong. Meekness is the kindness to someone who is in need. That's Jesus' definition of meekness. And this is the one he tells us to be. This just makes no sense because it's just not the way it works in the real world. What if we tried that? What if we actually tried doing this? What would happen? What would we see occur? The world would be completely confused. And that's one of Jesus' points he's trying to make here. The whole thing about the Beatitudes and the way we live is so countercultural, counterintuitive that for those who actually succeed at living this way, you're gonna get noticed. People are gonna go, they, he, she, they are different. Sometimes they'll meet in a nice way and sometimes they'll meet in a not so nice way. But they're gonna understand you are different. And oftentimes, it'll be the kind of difference that's attractive, that draws people to us. Why are you so different? Why are you so meek? Don't ever use that word, right? Because it's, they don't understand the real meaning. Why are you so humble? Why are you so kind? You don't know the things I've said about you, but yet you still are kind to me? This is... This is what Jesus is getting at with the Sermon on the Mount and with the Beatitudes. This idea that we just live so differently that people can't help but notice and they see it as attractive. They're drawn to it. And then blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Notice the the contrasting terms that Jesus uses in this one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. We all understand this, this this feeling of being thirsty, especially here in our climate. We all understand this idea of being hungry, and hunger and thirst is this, this this deep need, long be, long past just wanting righteousness, but this this aching, driving need. For righteousness. I've never really been there myself. I don't know about you, but. I mean, I've kind of liked righteousness from time to time. I enjoy being righteous. I really enjoy being righteously angry. Where there is no real such thing, sir. But I've never thirsted for righteousness. I'm just too selfish for that. But Jesus's promise is that if we will, we will be satisfied that that righteousness we want so badly, we will actually get it. Wow. I would really like to know what that's like. I would really like to know what it's like to be righteous. Yes, I enjoy the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to me through him. But it's never really perfect. His righteousness is perfect. God sees me as perfectly righteous. But I know I'm not really that guy. I'm just wearing Jesus' coat over my blackened soul. And that's enough to get me through the rest of this life and into the next. There, by God's mercy... My thirst for righteousness will finally be satisfied. And instead of it just being his righteousness placed over my blackened soul, I will be truly righteous. Then. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Finally, finally, we get to something that makes sense. You be kind to others. Others will usually be kind to you. You want to receive mercy then be merciful. But what does Jesus mean by merciful? Does he mean forgiving others for things they've done to me? Yes, he means that. We know he means that because when we finally get to the Lord's Prayer, he specifically says that very thing. And if you want to be forgiven, you must forgive those who've wronged you. But merciful means more than just that. It's more than just how we deal with individuals who have wronged us. Merciful means expressing kindness to those who cannot repay us. It means helping those who are unable to return the favor. Mercy means, it, it means all the things that a nice person is. Look at Jesus. How merciful was he? He was very merciful. If you, when you read the Gospels, you see Jesus is just so kind, so gentle, so merciful with almost everyone. And the more pathetic they are in our human eyes, the more merciful he is to them. The one group that he has absolutely zero mercy for, and he's kind of like, whoo, Lord, he is mad today, are the Pharisees. The religious elite are the only ones he doesn't show mercy to. And you know why? One of the reasons why? They they couldn't show mercy to others. You must live to my standard You must come up to my standard. That was their attitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Okay, can I just find a rock someplace to crawl under? Really, can I just hide from this one? I mean, the last thing I want is Jesus looking into my heart. I don't know about you, but I don't want Jesus anywhere near that spot. Because he's going to find some ugly stuff. Ugly. But yet, I have to have a pure heart if I want to see him. I really do want to see him. Is there anybody in this room that has not really wanted to fit you really with your own eyes, see Jesus the way that Peter and John saw him when he was walking on the earth? No, we all want that. We all want to just see God. And Jesus says, the only way I can do that is to have a pure heart. Oh. This is going to be a long process. If purity of heart is the only way to see God, I got a long wait to being able to see him. Which immediately raises the question, well, then how can I get a pure heart? How do I do that? I don't know. I got nothing for you in my pockets on that one. The only thing I know is that the Holy Spirit works within us and transforms us in ways that we cannot understand or explain is the only way to have a pure heart. And that one, I don't think, at least for me, it ain't coming until the end of time when I get my righteousness. Finally, I get the double portion here at the end of time. I get perfect righteousness and a pure heart. But until then, I got neither just pieces of it at times. And I got to be content with that. I have to be content with just getting pieces of being righteous and a pure heart, but not be content with it. This just gets more and more confusing. So I need to be content waiting until then, but I don't need to be content so I keep trying to get more here. Okay, okay, I kind of, okay, I get that, I get it, I get it. This is really hard. This is really hard. And then blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Okay. All right. Now finally something I can do. I have a natural bent and inclination and gifting towards peacemaking. This will be great. Except I really can't make anybody do anything. I can't make people be at peace with each other. All I can do is sort of like try to help them see maybe they've got a little something in their eye they want to pull out before they complain about the big fat log in their other person's eye, right? And then, you know, the importance of, you know, if you want Jesus and God to forgive you of your sins, he says you should forgive others, right? And, well, why? And and if you really understand what, You've been forgiven by God, you will recognize how little that is compared, or how huge that is compared to what others have done to us and we hold against them. It's like that parable of the servant who was in debt, he didn't understand forgiveness. He was forgiven this gigantic, unpayable debt. But yet he turns around and has no mercy and no forgiveness for the person who owed him a very small debt that could easily be paid off in a short period of time. But he's not having any of this mercy stuff. He's not having any of this forgiveness stuff, even though he just got forgiven this gigantic debt. Being a peacemaker. But it's also it's not just being a peacemaker between individuals. It's also keeping the peace as well to the degree that we are able to maintain the peace we have with others around us in the words that we speak and the things that we do. It's this idea of, of, of keeping the peace with those around us is kind of goes back to that old cliche that most of us were taught by our parents and grandparents Engage your mind before you engage your mouth. Think about what you're saying before you say it. Right? Most of us, at least the times I've created trouble instead of keeping the peace, I was talking before I was thinking. I didn't really care whether I hurt them or not. In fact, actually, I kind of wanted to hurt them. They deserved it. They were due a good tongue lashing. And I was the God appointed agent to give it to them. No, I wasn't. I wasn't even close to the God appointed agent to give them a good tongue lashing. I just wanted to give it to them because I was mad at them. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Do we really have to go down this road? I mean, do we really have to do this? We are persecuted for righteousness sake. In verses 11 and 12 are just an extension of this verse 10. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. (sighs) Okay. Fine. I don't really want to do this, but fine. We'll do this. We'll do it this way. So I'm doing the right thing at the right time for the right reason. But these people are still mad at me. I'm sure that's never happened to any of you. And our response is to do what? Right? See, doing the right thing and then getting persecuted for it is not too hard, right? I don't have anything to do with the persecution part. I just have to have sort of a sense of doing the right thing at the right moment. And then someone doesn't like it and they persecute me for doing the right thing in the right way. The tough part is how I respond to that. That's really where the rubber meets the road. And one of the reasons I think Jesus puts this at the end. This is like, if you can do all these other things, then you can do this last one. Because it is our response to the persecution that separates us from the rest of the world. Our response is what makes us look different. Different. Can I respond in meekness to the one that's persecuting me? Can I respond with a pure heart to the person that's persecuting me, or the group or the or whatever? Can I do that? If I can, I get the kingdom of heaven. If I can do that, I get the kingdom of heaven. But what if I can't? What if I'm still growing in all this righteousness and meekness and pure heart stuff and I don't respond well? What happens then? Do I just like lose everything? Is this an all or nothing option? Like respond well to the persecution or you're headed south instead of north, boys. You don't get the heaven. You get the opposite. You get hell. No, that doesn't seem to be what Jesus is saying. So what does it mean when I don't respond well to the persecution? It means I'm probably not as far along the path of righteousness as I thought I was. Not as far along the path of a pure heart as I thought I was. There's still time and room for me to be more like Jesus. To be conformed into his image. Which means even the persecution is something he's working for my good so that I can be more conformed into his image. Romans 8, 38, 39, and 40. Ah, okay. This is tough. This is tough. The, the toughness isn't really understanding what this means. Or what I'm supposed to do or how I'm supposed to live or the right mindset and attitude that I'm supposed to have. That's not the hard part. The hard part is how do I get them? How do I how do I live these beatitudes and walk and live in them? This is hard. You know, I don't know about you, but I've got nine reasons this is hard for me to do. I know that may surprise some of you. Some of you are probably surprised. I only came up with nine for myself. I mean, live without pridefulness. Grieving at my own sin and the sin of the destruction of the world. Considering others before myself. Not having ambition or desire to rule over others. Wanting Christ's righteousness more than anything. Extend mercy to those who deserve it and those who don't deserve it. Have hearts exemplifying pure love of God and others. Seek to keep the peace by our words and actions as well as make peace between those at odds with others. And joyfully endure verbal and physical, joyfully endure, joyfully endure verbal and physical abuse from ungodly wicked people who hate us because we tell the truth and show the love of Jesus. That's the quick summary of the Beatitudes. And I'm supposed to do that. I'm supposed to do that. Have you forgotten who you're talking to, Jesus? I mean, I'm a prideful guy. I'm just too prideful to really do this well. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm too selfish to really do this well. I'm too ambitious to do this well. I'm too indifferent to your stupidity, to do this well. I can't do this. You are asking too much of me. Remember Professor Snape in the early phases of the Harry Potter stories? And he's being asked to betray the evil one to protect and save. He's being asked. To do something extremely difficult. You ask too much. Dumbledore. You're asking too much Jesus. I can't do this. And that's when our Savior. In his loving kindness. I know. You're not able to do this. But if you take my hand let my spirit dwell within you and transform you from the inside out, you will be able to do this. And when these things really happen, when you're really supposed to be kind, when you don't feel like it, I will be there with you and my spirit in you to encourage you to do it anyway. Oh, what great love! He has for us that he would take us knowing we can't and give give us himself so we can. Oh, what great love our Savior has for us. And when I feel that love, when I taste that love, I want to do this. I want to be like this. I want to reflect Him. I want to be everything He's asking me to be when I taste His love. And that's my question to you, my brothers and sisters. Are you tasting His love for you? Not just have you tasted it once sometime in the past, but are you tasting it today? I don't think it's a coincidence that the Lord is calling us to taste his love every single day. And we have this great symbol of a fellowship meal to taste his goodness. If you aren't tasting it, whatever the obstacles are that are blocking you from tasting his love right this second, know that he wants to remove them from your face. He wants to remove them from your eyes. He wants to remove them from your heart. And he wants you to taste his love today, now, even in this hour. Because that's how much he loves us. And I plead with you, run to our father and let him take it away and taste his love love for you today it will be the sweetest piece of pie you've ever had and you didn't have to take it either let's pray oh lord thank you that you love us so much thank you that you have given us yourself thank you father And we plead with you to remove every single obstacle that prevents our heart's taste buds from absorbing every single molecule of your love. Let it be so, O Lord. Let it be so. In Jesus' name. Amen.